podcast for people who really fancy a good story. I'm Emily. And I'm Rebecca. And today we have a very poetic episode for you. We've got tea, we've got death, we've got flowers, and we have got phones. It's, <laughs> it's all happening. So yeah, buckle up. It's going to be fun. <laughs> So Emily, what are you infatuated with this week? I'm infatuated at all. (laughs) (laughs) We are (laughs) professionals. I'm infatuated with Under the Whispering Door by TJ Clune. Once more, I have to say that I was sent this copy by Black Crow and Tor. I've already posted my review, so this isn't like part of that, but I wanted to talk about it. I just have to disclose that. Very professional, well done. (laughs) Thanks. So, Under the Whispering Door came out in 2021 and it's described as a life and death love story. The little tagline on it is, his death was their beginning. Ooh. Yeah. So this is a book about Wallace, who is a, like, Scrooge-like character who dies suddenly and is collected by a reaper called May and taken to Charon's Crossing Tea and Treats, a place between life and death that masquerades as a tea shop, where he is to stay until he's ready to move on. Oh, Purgatory Cafe, I'm in. Yeah. And in a similar vein to A Christmas Carol, while he's here, Wallace learns the error of his ways and learns to appreciate life. He also, not a spoiler, seeing as it is all over the book, falls in love with Hugo, the owner of the tea shop. Okay. And that is basically the book. (laughs) It's quite a simple story, but I mean that in like a complimentary way. It's a very quiet book and it's one that like makes you think and like reflect on life and grief and regret, but it's also very beautiful and hopeful as well. Oh, that sounds like my type of thing. Yeah, I I think you'll really like this. Um, It's also very like quietly funny, which it might not sound like it would be, but like there's a resident ghost already at the tea shop who provides like an equal amount of levity and gravity. There's fun moments of Wallace like learning how to be a ghost. There's a ghost dog. Oh yeah. yes. <laughs> um, and I also like how the narration of the book evolves as Wallace's character evolves. That's obviously not something that's like unique to this book but I think this novel in particular is really good at it because Wallace begins as such a like caricature of a grumpy horrible man and you're meant to hate him but he like softens over time and like you warm to him as well and it's just like nice to see it happen. (laughs) Oh I love a grumpy man character. Yeah so besides that I honestly don't have a huge amount of analysis today because there's so little plot I don't want to focus on plot Instead, what I thought I would do is read some more, like, descriptive passages. So I've got a couple quotes that, like, describe the house and the tea shop. A couple on tea itself, because we are a household that appreciates tea. We love a bit of tea. (laughs) So this is our first look at Chiron's Crossing. May has just guided a very begrudging Wallace from his funeral to these woods. And this is what they see. I'm so here for everything. Like, the more that you said there, I was like, yes, yes, (laughs) yes. He didn't know what he was expecting after reading the sign. He'd never really been inside something that could be called a tea shop before. He'd gotten his morning coffee from the cart in front of the office building. He wasn't a hipster. He didn't have a man bun or an ironic sense of fashion, his current outfit be damned. The glasses he usually wore while reading were, while expensive, utilitarian. He didn't belong in something that could be described as a tea shop. What a preposterous idea. Which was why he was surprised when they came to the shop itself to see that it looked like a house. Granted, it was unlike any house he'd ever seen before, but a house all the same. A wooden porch wrapped around the front, large windows on either side of a bright green door, light flickering from within like candles had been lit. A brick chimney sat on the roof with a little curl of smoke coming out the top. But that was where the similarity to any house Wallace had ever seen ended. 
Part of it had to do with the cable extending from the hook in his chest and up the stairs, disappearing into the closed door, through the closed door. The house itself looked as if it had started out one way and then halfway through the builders had decided to go in another direction entirely. The best way Wallace could think of to describe it was that it looked like a child stacking block after block on top of one another, making a precarious tower. The house looked as if even the smallest breeze could send it tumbling down. The chimney wasn't crooked, per se, but more twisted, the brickwork jutting out at impossible angles. The bottom floor of the house appeared sturdy, but the second floor hung off to one side, the third floor to the opposite side, the fourth floor right in the middle, forming a turret with drapes drawn across multiple windows. Wallace thought he saw one of the drapes move as if someone were peering out, but it could have been a trick of the light. The outside of the house was constructed with panel siding, but also brick, and adobe? One side appeared to be built out of logs, as if it had been a cabin at one point. It looked like something out of a fairy tale, an unusual house hidden away in the woods. Perhaps there'd be a kindly woodsman inside, or a witch who wanted to cook Wallace in her oven, his skin cracking as it blackened. Wallace didn't know which was worse. He'd heard too many stories about terrible things happening in such houses, all in the name of teaching a very valuable lesson. This did nothing to make him feel better. What is this place? Wallace asked as they stopped near the porch. A small green scooter sat next to a flower bed. The blooms wild and yellows and greens and reds and whites, but muted in the dark. Awesome, right? May said. It's even crazier on the inside. <laughs> <laughs> and there is a little picture of it on I was the say. cover. And I think they've done a very good job at rendering this yeah, crazy that, house. <laughs> like, I obviously saw the picture before you described it, so that's what I was imagining. Yeah. But I feel like even if I hadn't seen that picture that's what I would imagine they even have the little scooter that's so cute I know so I thought I'd show you the inside of the building as well or at least like the main tea shop bit yes oh this feels so cozy oh it is very cozy even though it's like death I'm here for it yeah (laughs) it's such a creaky book yeah it's very squeaky he expected the inside of the house to look like the outside A mishmash of architectural atrocities better suited for demolition than habitation. He wasn't disappointed. The light was low, coming from mismatched sconces bolted to the walls and an obscenely large candle sitting on a small table near the door. Plants hung from the vaulted ceiling in wicker baskets, and though none of them were flowering, the scent of them was almost overwhelming, mixing with the powerful smell of spices that seemed embedded into the walls. The vines trailed toward the floor, swaying gently in the breeze through the open window on the far wall. He started to reach for one, suddenly desperate to feel the leaves against his skin, but he curled his hand at the last moment. He could smell them, so he knew they were there even if his eyes were playing tricks on him. And May could touch him. In fact, he could still feel the ghost of her fingers on his skin. But what if that was it? Wallace had never been a man of leisure, stopping to smell the roses, or so the saying went. Doubt, then. Doubt creeping up on him, sliding over his shoulders and weighing him down, fingers like claws digging in. A dozen tables sat in the middle of the large room, their surfaces gleaming as if freshly wiped down. The chairs tucked underneath were old and worn, though not shabby. They too were mismatched, some with wooden seats and backs, others with thick and faded cushions. He even saw a moon chair in one corner. He hadn't seen one of those since he was a kid. He barely heard May close the door behind them. He was distracted by the walls of the room, his feet moving him toward them of their own volition. They were covered in pictures and posters, some framed, some held up by pushpins. They told a story, he thought but one he couldn't follow. Here was a picture of a waterfall, the spray catching the sunlight in rainbow fractals. Here was a shot of an island in a cerulean sea, the trees so thick he couldn't see the ground. Here was a gigantic mural of the pyramids, drawn with a deft but unpractised hand. Here was a photograph of a castle on a cliff, the stone crumbling and being overtaken by moss. Here was a framed poster of a volcano rising above the clouds, 
lava bursting in hot arcs. Here is a painting of a town in the throes of winter, the lights bright and almost twinkling, reflecting off an unmarked layer of snow. Strangely, they all caused a lump in Wallace's throat. He had never had time for such places, and now he never would. Shaking his head, he moved on, glancing at a fireplace that made up half of the wall to his right, the wood shifting as the embers sparked. It was made of white stone, the mantle oak. Atop the mantle were little knick-knacks, a wolf carved from stone, a pine cone, a dried rose, a basket of white rocks, above the fireplace a clock, but it appeared to be broken. The second hand was twitching, but it never advanced. A high-batched chair sat in front of the fireplace, a heavy blanket hanging off the armrest. It looked welcoming. Wallace glanced to the left to see a counter with a cash register and an empty, darkened display case with little handwritten signs taped against the glass advertising a dozen different types of pastries. Jars lined the walls behind the counter. Some were filled with thin leaves, others with powder in various shades. Little handwritten labels sat in front of each one, describing even more varieties of tea. A large chalkboard hung on the wall above the jars, next to a pair of swinging doors with porthole windows. Someone had drawn little deer and squirrels and birds on the chalkboard in green and blue chalk, surrounding a menu that seemed to go on forever. Green tea and herbal tea, black tea and oolong, white tea, yellow tea, fermented tea, sencha, rose, yerba, senna, rooibos, chaga tea, chamomile, hibiscus, essiac, matcha, moringa, pear, nettle, dandelion tea, and he remembered the graveyard where May had plucked the dandelion puffball from the ground and blown on it, the little white wisps flowing away. They were all printed around a message in the centre of the board. The words, written in spiky and slanted letters, read, The first time you share tea, you are a stranger. The second time you share tea, you are an honoured guest. The third time you share tea, you become family. The entire place felt like a fever dream. It couldn't be real. It was too... something. Something that Wallace couldn't quite put his finger on. He stopped in front of the display case, staring at the message on the chalkboard, unable to look away. Unable, that was, until a dog ran out of a wall. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, that list of tea was so nice to listen to. (laughs) Yeah. Who knew there were so many nice sounding words for tea? There are lots of nice sounding words. Very, like, hard words to say. (laughs) Hibiscus is an excellent word. Yeah, it's a good word. Yeah, I just think it sounds so pretty. And I also... So another of Clune's novels is called The House in the Cerulean Sea. So I like that it gets a little cameo in this bit. I don't know if any of the other settings are like his other books, because I don't know what his other ones are. But yeah, I just think that's cute. I like that at least those two standalones like exist in the same universe. Yeah, that is cute. And I obviously like love the message on the chalkboard. And of course, as you read the book, you're like waiting for these multiple cups of tea that he'll drink. Yeah. Also, I think like that's so true. I know. Like hot drinks bond people. <laughs> they do. So yeah. So speaking of tea, mm-hmm. I of course had to read out tea-related passages. So this one's just a short one. It's a funny one. I think you will appreciate it. Okay, I'm excited. <laughs> you, this isn't that important, but basically he's he's worked out like how to move things now. Like he can touch things. Okay. He spent the day in the kitchen with me. He'd recovered enough from the seance with Nancy that he was able to pull trays of pastries from the oven and to lift the kettles from the stove. If anyone had looked through the portholes, they'd have seen a kitchenware floating through the air with the greatest of ease. Why don't you just heat the water in the microwave, he asked, pouring the water into a ceramic teapot. Oh my god, May said, don't ever let Hugo hear you say that. No, you know what, I changed my mind. Tell him, but make sure I'm there when you do. I want to see the expression on his face. Wouldn't be too happy, huh? Understatement. Tea is serious business, Wallace. You don't heat water for tea in the freaking microwave. Have a little class, man. She picked up the tray Wallace had been working on and backed through the doors. But still, tell him. I want to record his reaction. Honestly, though. 
Yeah. I didn't even know people did that until I lived with an American. Yeah, that's why I wanted to include this, because we've had multiple conversations about how Americans butcher tea making. But also, any heating... It just seems unsanitary to me, and I don't know why. (laughs) You know how, like, you get the ick about how I will fill my water glass in the bathroom tap? Yes. (laughs) That's the same... Like, I get that, but also I feel like it's worse to put water in the microwave. It's not right. No, it isn't right. I I do agree. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So my other quote, my last quote, actually, and this has been very short for me. um, (laughs) That's okay, because I'm going to make up for it. (laughs) That's all right. Is another tea one. I'm not going to explain, like, the ins and outs of this too much, because this is part of the book. But Mm -hmm. essentially, whenever a new ghost comes to stay, Hugo makes them a pot of tea, and everyone sits with them and drinks it. And the tea he picks especially for that person. Okay. So Wallace had a certain type of tea and this new arrival is going to have a different kind of tea. So this is a passage where Wallace is watching Hugo pick the tea for this new person who I'm not going to say who is. Okay. Hugo went to the pantry, frowning at the contents as he stood in front of it. Wallace looked over his shoulder. More jars lined the shelves, each with a different kind of tea inside. Unlike the ones behind the counter in the front of the shop, these weren't labelled. Most of them were in powder form. Matcha, Hugo muttered to himself. No, that's not right. Yaupon? No, that's not it either, though I think it's close. What are you doing? Trying to find what tea will best fit our guest, Hugo said. You did this with me. He nodded as he pointed toward a dark powder toward the top of the shelf. You were easy. Easier than almost anyone I'd ever had before. Wow, Wallace said. First time anyone said that about me. I don't know how I feel about it. Hugo was startled into laughter. That's not... Oh, you know what I meant. You said it, not me. It's an art, Hugo said. Or at least that's what I tell myself. Picking the perfect tea for a person. I don't always get it right, but I'm getting better at it. He reached for a jar, touching the glass before pulling his hand back. That's not it either. What could... Ah, really, that's an acquired taste. He took a jar from the shelf, filled with twisted, blackened leaves. Not one of mine. I don't think I could grow it here, had this imported. What is it? Wallace asked, eyeing the jar. The leaves looked dead. Cudding chaff. Hugo said, turning toward the opposite counter to prepare the tea. It's a Chinese infusion. The literal translation is bitter nail tea. It's usually made from a type of wax tree and holly. The taste isn't for everyone. It's very bitter, though it's said to be medicinal. It's supposed to help clear the eyes and the head, resolves toxins. And this is what you're going to give him, Wallace asked, watching as Hugo pulled a twisted leaf from the jar. The earthy scent was pungent, causing Wallace to sneeze. I think so, Hugo said. It's unusual. I've never had someone take this tea before. He stared at the leaf before shaking his head. Probably nothing. Watch. Wallace stood next to him as Hugo poured hot water into the same set of teacups he'd used when May brought Wallace the first night. Steam billowed up as he set the teapot down. He held the leaf between two fingers as he lowered it gently into the water. Once it was submerged, the leaf unfurled like a blooming flower. The water began to darken to an odd shade of brown, even as the leaf lightened in colour to an off-green. What do you smell? Hugo asked. Wallace leaned forward and inhaled the steam. It clogged his nostrils and he wiggled his nose as he pulled back. Grass? Hugo nodded, obviously pleased. Exactly. Underneath the bitterness, it has a herbal note with an aftertaste that's like lingering honey. You have to get through the bitter to find it, though. Wallace sighed. One of those things where you say one thing but mean something else. Hugo smiled. Or it's just tea. Doesn't need to mean something when it's already so complex. Try it. I think you might be surprised. It probably needs to steep longer, but it'll give you a good idea. He thought back to the proverb hanging in the tea shop. 
Hugo must have been thinking the same thing as he handed Wallace the cup and said, It's your second. Honoured guest. Wallace swallowed thickly as he took the cup from Hugo. It wasn't lost on him that this was the closest they could ever get to touching. He felt Hugo's gaze on him as they both held the cup longer than was necessary. Eventually, Hugo dropped his hand. The water was still clear, though the brown tinge had given way to a green closer to the colour of the leaf. He brought it to his lips and sipped. He gagged, the tea sliding down his throat and blooming hotly in his stomach. It was bitter, yes, and then the grass hit and it tasted like he'd eaten half a lawn. The honey after note was there, but the sweetness was lost by the fact that Wallace hated everything about it. Holy crap, he said, wiping his mouth as Hugo took the teacup back. That's terrible. Who the hell would drink that willingly? He watched as Hugo brought the cup to his own lips. He grimaced as his throat worked. Yeah, he said, pulling the cup away. Just because I love tea doesn't mean I love every kind of tea. He smacked his lips. Ah, there's the honey. Almost worth it. Have you ever been wrong to picking out a tea? For people who come in here alive, yes. But not the dead. Not the dead, Hugo agreed. That's remarkable. Bizarre, but remarkable. Was that another compliment, Wallace? Uh, sure, Wallace said, suddenly uncomfortable. He was standing closer to Hugo than he realised. He cleared his throat as he took a step back. Man, that taste doesn't leave. Hugo chuckled. Sticks with you. I liked yours much better. That shouldn't have made Wallace as happy as it did. Was that a compliment, Hugo? It was, Hugo said simply. Wallace took those two words and held them close, the bitterness he felt no match against the sweet of the aftertaste. Hugo pulled out more leaves from the jar, setting them on a small plate next to the teapot and cups. There. How does it look? Like you went outside and picked up the first thing you found on the ground. Perfect, Hugo said cheerfully. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that was a nice passage. I know, it's just so sweet. I think that's like a good example of like the vibe mm. of the book. It's like, it's a little funny, but it's mostly just like beautiful description and like poignant little moments like speckled between it. It reminds me a little bit of Becky Chambers writing. Yeah, I thought so. I thought I actually read this at a very similar time to when you read um, the Monk and the Robot book. Mm, and Sam was, for the Wild Bill. Yeah, and I was like, oh, they they sound quite similar. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, I I think I'd describe this as quite a like thoughtful book. There's definitely some dark moments, and it's obviously a book about death and grief. Um, however, I think it's got so much heart to it that overall, it's like a really sweet reading experience it's really cozy like the word that you said and that's kind of all i have to say today about under the whispering door a title which does make sense when you read the book but perhaps not from this episode i was wondering about um, the title but i will have to read the book and you see. will have to read the book because it's too much of a spoiler <laughs> and yeah i just love how reflective it is and the really interesting discussions that it has about like death and grieving and i wish i could visit this tea shop because mm. it just seems like such a wholesome place. Yeah, obviously it's just hinted that in that first passage, well, the second one about the inside of the tea shop. But yeah. like even that little tinge of regret that he has, I was like, oh, this is going to be a wee, wee bit of a sad book. Yeah, it's a, it's a weepy one. <laughs> Especially because like, obviously I didn't talk much about Wallace and Hugo's relationship, but like from the little bit you can see there, like they're just so sweet together. I just love it. It was great. Nice. What are you infatuated with? My infatuation this week is one that I have been wanting to talk about for ages, but I needed to gather myself (laughs) to talk about it. So this week I am talking about I Love You, Call Me Back by Sabrina Benham, Mm. who, as we know, I've never heard of (laughs) (laughs) and don't care about at all. (laughs) So yeah, no, obviously I love Sabrina Benham and I Love You, Call Me Back is her second poetry collection. It is the follow-up to the absolute blockbuster debut, which was Depression and Other Magic Tricks, which I've read out here before. Mm. This one came out last year, 2021, and it was published by Plume, which is an imprint of Penguin, which 
I just wanted to shout out because Sabrina has historically been a button poetry, spoken word poet. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of nice to see her with a foot in both that popular poetry scene and also the more literary scene yeah. um, of Plume. So yeah, like good for her. Well done. And even though I read this last year when it came out, I feel like I'm more infatuated with it now, as is what often happens with poetry, because uh, a lot of it was written during lockdown, so it takes place in this very intense period of like self-reflection, and the world's very small, and she's in her house a lot, mm-hmm. and I feel like even though we're not in lockdown anymore, the beginning of this year has been a very intense period. Um, of contemplation and reflection for me Mm -hmm. Um, and obviously we moved so like homes is a big thing on my mind yeah so yeah I just feel like this is the perfect collection for anyone who is spending a lot of time in their home Mm. so yeah the first thing that I want to talk about this is going to be I'm I'm doing a full there's a full deep dive here so (laughs) settle in guys the first thing I want to pick out about this collection is the title because it is devastatingly perfect and I'm going to read a couple poems out to demonstrate how perfect it is. Mm-hmm. So, the nice thing about Sabrina Bedham's poetry is that most of them are not that long. So, here we go. Straight in with the tears. <laughs> Voicemail from my mother. Sabrina, one more thing. There's an old grey bathrobe slung in the back of my closet. If I die, I want you to come straight here and empty its pockets. There should be enough money to get you through the first few weeks. And if I make it through, it's a family vacation. And I want you to know I'm thinking of everything so you won't have to. I know you're worrying, even though you don't tell me. You can tell me. I'm still here. I love you. Call me back. Oh. Yeah. (laughs) And the partner poem to that. Voicemail left on my mother's answering machine. Mama Bear, where are you? Are you okay? Could you call me back immediately? I'm sorry. You're probably fine. Probably making a sandwich or on the house phone or reading to the baby or outside in the backyard. Maybe repotting the mint. Maybe in the laundry room. Maybe. I'm sure you're fine. I'm overreacting. But do call me back immediately, please. Sorry. I love you. Okay. I love you. Call me back. I'm going to read out two more and then I'm going to talk about them all. In a different vein. This one is called In a Text Message. The man I am in love with says to me, it's just that in my head you aren't real. And like that, poof, I am a ghost. You once begged for a haunting. But you know what? Maybe some other time. Ha, time is not real. I mean, I am more real than time. You are cruel. A kiss goodbye. A spell. Like the notes of a piano when you finger the right keys. Dancing in the living room, in your arms, you rolling up the sleeve of my t-shirt, wasn't I real enough? Perfect and temporary. A bloom curious about winter. A peach-coloured rose called cinnamon. I fixed myself a dinner of dandelion wishes. To be real, to be real, to be real. I sit on my yellow couch. Sing along with Mac when he says, I think we might just be alright. I will be alright. The rocks are aligned on the windowsill. The cutlery is asleep in the top drawer. Everything has its place. Your place is far from mine. Your face is far from mine. I think about missing you. I let it go. My hands do not shake when I remember I can barely remember how to dance in the dark. I buy a candle. I forgot my name, dyed my hair, sunset the song. It skips, my heart gallops away. Yes, I went and you stayed behind. And then you got mad and told me not to come back. But then you got mad when I didn't come back. And you didn't talk to me for months. And now you don't want to talk to me anymore. The first thing I do is forgive myself for how long it's taking to look in the mirror. Touch my body and feel myself. Better than perfect and good as any flower. I am real. Mm. Which is a different vibe. Yes, very different. And then, but these all have, (laughs) I'm getting to a point. (laughs) One more. Maddie texts me to look at the moon, and so I go outside, but I cannot see the moon from my stoop. So I slip back in, slip on shoes, Mabel's collar, and before I know it, we are in the park, by the empty basketball court, where the light is. Mabel searches for the right patch of grass, and I am looking for the moon, that neon cantaloupe, that cold scoop of vanilla ice cream. I walk past the park to the 7-Eleven, 
looking for the moon made me hungry. I buy a pack of almonds, a can of Diet Pepsi. I take the complicated way back, weave through the side streets to tire Mabel out before bed. Back home, I pop the tab on the can. Once Mabel is curled up asleep on the yellow couch, I sneak out onto the stoop. With each sip, I tell myself a secret. I have not eaten anything today. I do not even want the almonds. Buying them is enough for me. I am always distracting myself from the root of the problem. I would rather be hungry than lonely. I look up, but then I remember I can't see the moon from my stoop. Only the stars. Only the dead, dull stars. I go back inside. I eat the almonds while I watch a rerun of Law and Order. And when the bell inside me rings, in my notebook I write, Could not see the moon at all tonight. Bring up eating in therapy. Text Maddie. Thank her. Tell her the moon was exactly the reminder I needed. So, the thing that all of these poems have in common, English class, (laughs) is a phone. Ah, yes, yeah. Which is genius for a pandemic poetry collection. Mm-hmm. To focus on the object that keeps you connected to everyone. Yeah. And also I like that she's unabashed about including technology too. Because I think that there's a perception in poetry still that it has to be timeless. And yeah, like yeah, yeah. rooted in nature and like very organic. Yeah. But I like that Sabrina just doesn't do that. But also that these poems, that phone image... In, is in all the poems which encompass the three main emotions of this collection, which is grief over the aneurysm that her mother has been diagnosed with. Right. Loneliness or heartbreak over this love that's been lost. And just a deep, deep like disconnection from other people, right? So when you take that phrase, I love you, call me back, and you apply it to any of those poems, mm-hmm. I just, <laughs> I just think like... You say, I love you, call me back, to your mother who you're scared is going to die. Yeah. You say it to your lover who won't speak to you. Mm-hmm. Or you say it to your friends who, like, you desperately want to be around but you can't. Yeah. I just think that it's the most perfect title. And I think in terms of adding... Like, sometimes titles are just a good line, but I think it's such a good example of how a title can make a collection more than the sum of its parts. Yeah, yeah, I get you. So yeah, I just wanted to appreciate that. <laughs> also, I don't know if you picked up on the many yellow references mm. um, throughout that, but you can't really go more than a couple of pages in this book without something yellow. Oh. And you'll see that the cover is yellow. Yes. It's a very yellow book. And it's an interesting colour because a lot of the book is very sad mm. and yellow is usually associated with joy. But I think in similarity to the title... The collection does a really good job of interrogating all the different tones of yellow. Mm-hmm. Which reminds me, like, randomly I had an associative moment where I was like, there's a song by Griff called Shades of Yellow. And the hook in that song is, there's a light in your room and the lamp is a shade of yellow. And it makes me feel safe and sound and I swear that's rare these days. Yeah. And I just think if anyone's really into yellow, they should listen to that song. <laughs> but my favourite yellow poem in this is called daydream so i'm just gonna read it out because this is a nice one (laughs) this is not gonna assault you daydream i am your wife you bring yellow flowers every monday when you arrive home i keep them out on the wooden table no taller than a tulip standing on the shoulders of another tulip we go for walks after the sun goes down steal daffodils from our neighbor's gardens All I want to talk about is loving you. The wind rustles the rocks that hang on string from the magnolia tree in our yard like chimes. We waltz, slippery in our socks. We eat too many sour candies, but live content in our little cavity. Oh. I just think that's nice. (laughs) It's nice. And I just think it's really dedicated to have that many yellow references in one poem. Yeah. Like, well done, once again. (laughs) Switching gears for from my uh, English teacher vibes for a second, mm-hmm. I want you to share this pair of poems with you and the infatuated community at large, mm-hmm. because I know we all love a fairy tale retelling. Oh yes. So in the spirit of that, that truly has been the theme of this season. Truly <laughs> fairy tales. has been fairy tales. <laughs> this is from Bell to the Beast. Okay. Oh, master of anger, I am your most loyal disciple. 
Oh, snarl and smile and sink, I sink to my stinging knees. Oh, you biting, silent beast, how you sulk and I accept. The challenge to lift you up, oh, how I look up to you. Sensitive and stubborn statue of self-righteousness, you selfish decision. And yes, I do dream of having more than a collection of clipped claws and thistles pulled from my palms. Oh, how I beat myself soft, scrub almost raw. You are the one coated in silken tendrils. We both know you are the master because you need it, because I let you. Because I want to earn your love, because you won't give it to me. Any other way, oh, how I wish I could be mad at anyone the way I am with myself for not being mad at you. <laughs> and this is the beast's response. Oh. Look at all I have given you. I built you a library and still you want a love poem. <laughs> <laughs> I like that. <laughs> yeah, I thought you would like that. I don't have anything to say about that. Yeah. I just wanted to share that. I'd want that. both. I'd want someone to build me a library and, and write me a love poem. Yeah. <laughs> I love the line um, at the end of that one, like, how I wish I could be mad at anyone the way I am with myself for not being mad at you. Yeah, I'm that's like, good. That is such a good um, retelling, but also just a good emotion. Mm-hmm. And so my final favourite thing that I wanted to mention about this book is the way that it calls back to the first collection, Depression mm. and Other Magic Tricks. Mm-hmm. So I mentioned before how I love a self-reflexive moment, but I think one of the strengths of this as a second book is that it's not like, obviously it's poetry, so it's not a sequel, but it isn't like a sequel to the first in any way aesthetically, but it doesn't try and separate itself from it either. Mm -hmm. And I kind of, like, I guess if you're in the poetry world, like when someone breaks away from button poetry, you expect them to go like fully the other way. Um, So I kind of like that there's like a affection for the first book mm-hmm. so for example in depression and other magic tricks the most famous poem is called explaining my depression to my mother and it has these very iconic opening lines which are mom my depression is a shapeshifter one day it's as small as a firefly in the palm of a bear the next it's the bear mm-hmm. and like anyone who loves sabrina benham knows those lines and in this collection there's a poem called addendum and it just goes i once told you my depression is a firefly the truth is i am the firefly if you pave a field of fireflies the fireflies will not migrate they will disappear my depression is concrete and i'm doing everything i can to survive and i think i like that because it's really heartening as a writer to see the way that you can return to your own image. Yeah. And, like, change it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's obviously, like, a different mind a few years on. Yeah. So, yeah, it feels it just feels, like, really genuine and authentic to see that, like, this firefly is obviously very much associated with her depression in mm-hmm. her head. Yeah. And so, even though it feels like a really original image, like, that obviously comes naturally to her. Yeah. Like, which I think is cool. Oh, it's so sad, though. Yeah. Another returning image that we have is the there's a small bell in Depression and Other Magic Tricks and the line is something like, I didn't actually look it up for this but mm-hmm. I've read the poem enough, it's something like, inside me there hangs a small bell, I do not know how to ring it but I swear I've heard it ring and I can't stop thinking about when it will ring next. Right, yeah. And bells feature in this collection a lot. Mm-hmm. I already read a line mm-hmm. that had a, be- a bell in it. But um, there's a clear callback to that line in this one called Poem from the Bed. Imagine a bed. I imagine a medium soft bed with at least two pillows and a comforter. A fluffy comforter. Not heavy like gravity, but there is a decent weight to it and it is cool to the touch. I imagine the bed is in a room and the windows are open. On the windowsill there is, I imagine, a candle melted three quarters of the way down its jar. Two pine cones sitting in the scoops of wooden spoons and a small gold bell. I imagine if I pick up the bell and ring it, you can hear it from wherever you are. I imagine I am too afraid to ring it even once. There is a calendar on the wall still set to march. A record player spinning Sinatra at the sands. There is nobody in the room but me. 
Once a week on Sundays I pick exactly three flowers and put them in the clay vase I made at camp one summer that sits on my desk. I imagine that Balmy camp air and it is not better than the air here in my room with my bed. I say out loud the things I need to remember. Vet appointment Monday at noon. Therapy Tuesday at 1.30. I don't have to feel sorry for choosing myself. It is here where things get complicated. Real. Because I have imagined a bed. I want to lie in it. Truth be told, I am not sorry for choosing myself. Just lonely. I imagine I am the kind of person who is okay with that. (laughs) But the rest of the poem is not relevant to my argument. Um, It's more just the little (laughs) bell. I feel like in the first collection the bell of like there's a bell inside me I don't know how to ring it but I swear I've heard it ring mm. to me like I always imagine that being like inspiration mm-hmm. yeah. um and this one I feel like it's that sense of like connection or like I imagine I pick it up and ring it and you can hear it from wherever you are and I'm too afraid to ring it even once mm. again I just like that she's morphed like taking that same image but and morphed it, it. yeah into something new and I feel like if I read this enough I would find a connection between the idea of inspiration and the idea of connection Mm. I don't know I'm not going to go that deep right now but I imagine (laughs) that that's there there's also a poem in the first book about depression called The Slow Now and in this one we have a poem which is literally just called A Return to the Slow Now Mm. which feels very apt since pandemic Mm And she does this thing which doesn't read aloud super well, but she calls a poem dreams slash something. So in the first book, it's hurdles slash dreams. And in this book, it's a dream slash a memory. And each line is separated by a forward slash instead of like a line break. And it looks like musical rests. Oh, okay. And she uses it, like obviously in the first one, hurdles and dreams, it looks like little hurdles. Yeah. A dream, a memory, she uses it to build like a montage of images, the way a dream or a memory feels. Mm-hmm. And it's always about the passage of time. So I like that that reoccurs as well. Fuck it, I'm going to read that one out. Because <laughs> I've done this quicker than I thought I would. So we're just going to get them all now. Here's what I mean by a montage a dream slash a memory. I can hear Mac Miller whispering from the clouds because we are speeding in Pennsylvania, where I once ran over a dead bear. And now that seems like some kind of metaphor, like I have learned a thing or two since then, because of that. I'm a good driver. The entire bear incident wasn't even my fault, but it is another story. Here I have only alive and pulsing offerings. Take this citrus fruit and fine white sugar. Almost a full tank of gas. Memories still developing like Polaroids face down on the dashboard. My friends are here and they are glad to be. I am so glad for that. For this night, clear enough to see the stars. Not that I am even looking for a sign. I am watching the mile markers fall back faster than the beat of this song. It's easy to forget that we will all be gone someday when we are so present in the right now. Shane is driving and dancing and hitting all the ad-libs that are and are not there in the song. Clementine is chilling in the back seat and I am a bop along, a giggling bop, all nodding, all yes. There was once a king who whipped it down the same stretch of 76, probably. We smoke a blunt in his honour in the hotel room, overlooking the yellow metal bridge, and then we go on sharing the good word through art, through these gospels, while holding hands with our antidepressants, singing psalms in the key of thrive. I think whatever keeps you moving forward might be the same thing keeping you alive. And on this night in Pittsburgh, we are living as if everything is love in our ears, and all we need is lit up before us, a freeway and a bright night sky holding us down. And even when I'm reading that out, like because it's not got actual line breaks, it makes you go fast. Go fast, yeah. So good for pacing. It's so well done. <laughs> She's so good. <laughs> uh, so yeah, there's so many cool developments in like carrying on and reworking from the first book. But I think that my ultimate favourite version of that is the one that's probably the least obviously similar. Mm-hmm. There is a poem in the first book that I've definitely talked about to you a million times called The Loneliest Sweet Potato. Yes. And it's about being lonely at a grocery store. And it has the last line, my name walks around at the grocery store and feels less sad. Less sad because at the grocery store at least nobody knows there is nobody in love with me. 
which is amazing. <laughs> in I Love You, Call Me Back, there's this other poem and I feel like it's the same energy mm-hmm. and even though it doesn't have the same structure mm-hmm. and you'll get it in a minute. Okay. So it's called Whitney. Today I went outside to have an interaction with a stranger to remind myself that I exist. This is how I know I am depressed again. I have to remind myself that I exist. I went to the plant store and the beautiful blonde girl behind the counter asked my name, then followed it up by asking where I was from because she could tell I wasn't from here. She said she has a knack for being able to tell when someone is from out of town. So badly I wanted to say, I'm still in the process of figuring out where I've come from, if you know what I mean, but instead I said Canada. She was from Virginia, which she loves to tell people because apparently being from Virginia is a very good thing. I'm glad to have left the house today to have learned that. I don't think I know anyone from Virginia, except Whitney at the plant store, who sold me a cactus which now sits on a shelf, and every time I look at it I remember I am capable of going outside and telling a stranger my name. On the worst of days, I am still myself. I name the cactus Resilience. I do not touch its needles to prove anything. I am tired of relying on pain. Today I felt joy because beautiful Whitney asked me my name. She also said she liked my hair, but I'm not trying to brag. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I do think they have similar energy. I think, like, the, like, it's the going out even when you feel very lonely, but in the first one I think it was like, don't perceive me. Mm -hmm. I just want to be out here to know that I exist. Yeah. Whereas this one, she, like, gets perceived. Yeah. I I just think it's nice. Aww. Finally, <laughs> you'll, this is the real finally, <laughs> I wanted to end by just reading out my favourite poem yeah. in the book, <laughs> which, if you can believe it, I've not read yet. <laughs> and this is because it has my favourite line. My favourite line from the first book, if anyone cares, is, I miss you, but I don't wish you were here. I feel like you'll be able to tell what my favourite line is in this one. Okay. This is called June 30th, which, by the way... I was naming poems after dates before I knew that Sabrina was naming poems after dates. It's just a pandemic thing because you've <laughs> got to keep track of the time. June 30th. I dress in the dark. It does not matter if I forget my necklace or earrings. Keep forgetting which day of the week it is, but remember to eat breakfast. Swallow the good white bullet that poisons the place where the lonely breeds. I am dancing again in the kitchen, spicing sliced pears. I am baking again in the restful yawn of morning. Each afternoon, I go through a walk through the cemetery, place pennies on the speller graves, sit in the grass cross-legged with the flowers and write a new religion where we pray only with and never to. Read poems aloud and remember my favourite lines onto postcards I will procrastinate sending to the people I love. I live alone, eight states and a border away from home. My cups are clean and upside down in the cupboard. I watercolour peonies instead of picking new wounds. When my tiny talk machine chirps, I do not always check it. I do not wish to see a ghost. I do not wish a summons. I allow myself to go entire days without speaking to anyone except my mother. I swallow two bullets blue each night for the ever grief. Sleep. I have not used the word depressed to describe myself outside of a poem in months, but I am drinking Diet Pepsi again. The thing is my head is a bright place I would not hesitate to invite you into. I've painted all the furniture marigold sunrise. Tonight, at 7-Eleven, I asked for a lighter and do you know what colour the cashier gave me? Yes, keep me in this canary dream where I sugar scrub my lips soft as feathers and pretend to kiss. I confess, sometimes I cry when I look in the mirror, but I tell myself it is the mirror who is crying with jealousy. On the generous days, I tell myself I am sweet enough to spread on toast and call dessert. Then I giggle. I am not afraid to feel silly. I am not afraid to feel anymore. You know, I wish I wasn't so sad. I have been in such a good mood. Want to know a secret? I think being in love is just a better kind of lonely. Aww. Is it the last line? It's the second last line. Second last line. I wish I wasn't so sad. I've been in such a good mood. Yeah. I just think that's amazing. <laughs> it is good. So yeah, that's all. <laughs> I really love this book. I didn't like sink into it as immediately when it came out as I did with the first one. But now I feel like it's going to be... I think it's more of a summer vibe than a winter vibe. 
Mm. So now that the sun is out, I'm like, yeah, yeah. it's time. Nice. Would recommend. <laughs> <laughs> So, for our writing chat, mm-hmm. this question comes from me. <laughs> yes. Because <laughs> I wanted to know, without giving away any spoilers, what images or motifs do you find yourself coming back to a lot in your work in progress or your writing? I wonder where you got that idea from. <laughs> <laughs> I wonder where I got that idea from. wonder why I was so, thinking about that. So, my novel is a lot about someone looking for signs, so repeating images or motifs is something that I purposefully do. Okay. So, I'll list those off, but I have like moon and sun imagery, knight and princess, and prince imagery. There's a lot of like swords and crowns mm. and stuff. However, I gathered that like the purpose of your question was like more like unconscious yeah. recurring things. So, I had like. I tried to have like a look through and I was like, is there anything that's coming up a lot that I hadn't like thought about putting in? And I kind of came up with two things. So I have lots of book talk. Mm. <laughs> I have, my character grew up in a bookshop, so everything about him is like shaped for books. Mm. He's like always carrying a book or a notebook. His like fingers are made for holding like spines of books or pens or like his fingers are always ink stained. I feel like there's a lot of fun to be had with book related words as mm. well. Like the spine of a book could be like the spine of a person. Um you can like read people, like you can read words. Yes. Um so yeah, I don't know if that counts as much of a like No, definitely motif. motif. Yeah. But apart from like the imagery that I put in on purpose, that is like the most prominent thing. The other thing I did notice is I have loads of water yeah, you do have a lot of water, and I've I, only read a tiny bit. And I, I don't know why. I can't work out. Pisces. I know, well. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, I noticed that in this novel, and also in my other one that's in its very early stages, like I have oceans, lakes, rain, showers, like pools, mm-hmm. puddles, <laughs> a lot of water, and characters being drenched in water mm. is what I seem to find a lot. That's interesting. It is interesting because I don't know where that comes from. I don't know if it's just like, oh yeah, Pisces. Like, I think as well, like a lot of your, yeah, I suppose a lot of your settings are like. Well, one of them set in Cornwall, which, which is, is on at the, the coast, seaside, yeah. so that makes sense. But the other book. But you love a... like a gloomy day, do you know? So like rain, <laughs> so like rain, not yeah. not in real life, but like in a book, you love like rain and puddles and yeah. like that kind of vibe. So that does make sense, I suppose. Yeah. So th- that was what I found. Nice. In mine. What about you? Mine. So similar to you, there's one that I put in my novel on purpose. Yeah. Which is wings. Yes. But I did start writing about those unconsciously, mm. and then based my novel around that. Mm-hmm. The other things that I've I looked through some of my poems and I was like, what comes up all the time? And so there's lots of jewellery yeah. in all of my stuff, which I hadn't realised like <laughs> consciously, but there's always jewellery. Yeah. I like a champagne flute, which mm. I also attribute to Sabrina unconsciously now because she has a line in Depression and Other Magic Tricks, which I just thought was amazing. And it's like, learn to hold my body like a champagne flute in the hand of a debutante (laughs) and I was like whoa that's so that's such a good way to say good posture yeah and I think since that's just like infected my brain and now I love a champagne flute Mm. I like cracked pavements or walls there seems to be a lot of like solid things that are cracked Mm -hmm. and the Milky Way comes up a lot oh I have a lot not like stars the Milky Way specifically. Yeah. Mm. So I was like, huh, didn't... I didn't know any of those except wings off the top <laughs> of my head. But yeah. there you have it. Less trees than I'd expect from me. Mm. Like when I go for a tree, I will go for it. But it's not yeah. in everything. Yeah. <laughs> there we go. Nice. <laughs> the more you know. <laughs> there we go. I know, I was like, what, what's the, the ending message of that? <laughs> Who knows? <laughs> People might want to know. People might be <laughs> curious. I just thought it was fun. Yeah, no, it is. So what's your quickfire favourite? 
My favourite this week is a podcast by John Ronson. It's called Things Fell Apart and it's basically like a documentary series done through a podcast. Ooh. So John Ronson is, for anyone who doesn't know, is a British journalist. He's done a couple of documentary or investigative podcasts before The Butterfly Effect and The Last Days of August, which are both about the effects of the porn industry once free porn became available. Mm. I really recommend those. They're like, they're amazing. I also think his books are really interesting as well. The two I've read are The Psychopath Test and So You've Been Publicly Shamed. Mm. Um, and they're probably two of my favourite non-fiction books yeah, like, ever. Yeah, my <laughs> friend read So You've Been Publicly Shamed when we were on holiday. Mm-hmm. And you know how when you're on holiday you just share everything about your books. Yeah. So I feel like I've read it even though I've not. Yeah. And it is really good. It's amazing. Everyone should read it. Like, if you're on social media, you should read that book. Mm. So, basically, I'm just like a John Ronson stan. So I was very excited and intrigued to listen to this podcast series. I thought instead of trying to explain it, I would actually just read out, like, his introduction Mm. that he, like, does in every episode. So he starts it by saying, This is Things Fell Apart, Strange Tales from the Culture Wars. I'm John Ronson, a writer living in America, the land where culture wars begin. By culture wars, I mean the battle for dominance between conflicting values. These wars can obsess us, consume our lives. I was curious to learn how things fell apart, and so I went back in history to find the origin stories, the pebbles thrown in the ponds that led to ripples. Mm. So, essentially, it's a series of eight episodes. It starts in the 70s and moves towards present day. And I'm not going to explain like what all the episodes are, but for example, the first one explains how a guy just helping his dad film a video for his like evangelical church leads to someone unrelated to them being shot in their own home. Okay. <laughs> it touches on a lot of culture. It's like religion, abortion rights, banning books. That's a really interesting episode. HIV, the satanic panic, all the way up to like bullying on Snapchat. Mm. And I really recommend listening to him in order because he does often refer back to events in previous episodes and how like things that happened in those episodes are ripple effects for, you know, like things that he's talking about present day. It's just so interesting and it's kind of infuriating as well that like as in you're learning about important things yeah (laughs) so i just i really recommend it that does sound really good actually yeah yeah it's really good nice what is your quickfire favorite my quickfire favorite is less a specific piece of media and more just a realization of a pattern of things that i love okay which is extremely dramatic star-crossed like yelling over one another at the crescendo male female duets okay i have a playlist of these on my phone that i started making yes and like, it's the fastest growing playlist on my phone because it has astounded me how satisfying I find this, like, mm. subgenre. So I think because they're quite cinematic a lot of the time yeah. and they sound like dialogue. But examples of what I mean, you might want to just yep. wait because I'm going to fire off some. pen is ready. The pen is ready. Okay. <laughs> We've got Exile by Taylor Swift and Bonnie Vare. Oh, why did I think you were going to mention that one? We've got Funeral by Maisie Peters and James Bay. Mm-hmm. We've got A Lovely Night from La La Land. <laughs> and my most recent favourite is Reckless Driving by Lizzie McAlpine and Ben Kessler. Okay. Where the conceit, oh, it's so good, is she's a careful driver and he's a reckless driver. And if they stay in love, he's going to crash the car and she'll have to stay for the carnage or she'll have to leave before it happens. And it's just so dramatic. <laughs> and at the end, they're like wailing over each other with their two separate refrains, which... Mm-hmm is exquisite and hers is I don't love you like that I'm a careful driver and I tell you all the time to keep your eyes on the road but you love me like that you're a reckless driver and one day you're gonna kill us if I don't let go and his is because I love you like that I'm a reckless driver and you tell me all the time to keep my eyes on the road do you love me like that should I keep on driving would you hold me if we crash or would you let me go oh my god (laughs) It's so dramatic. It's so good. And they're like singing it at the same time. Yeah. And the vibes are just... So, yeah. Basically, give me recommendations for this specific type of music. I'm going to start listening out for it. Yeah. (laughs) Give you recommendations. Because 
I just, there's something, like, I love the story element of these songs, but I think my ears also just really like a male-female duet. Yeah. So, that's it. <laughs> nice. <laughs> Do you have a route for us? I do. So for my route this week, I decided to kind of keep on theme mm-hmm. and dive into a, a flower that I haven't mentioned but that comes up a lot in Sabrina's poetry, mm-hmm. which is the lilac. Mm. Um, so I thought I would share the story of the lilac from Greek mythology and the meaning of the flower through the ages. Nice. So lilacs have a deep-rooted history originating in ancient Greek mythology, it is said that Pan, the god of forests and fields, was hopelessly in love with a nymph named Syringa. Syringa? Mm, I don't know. Syringa? Her. <laughs> One day he was pursuing her through a forest and, afraid of his advances, she turned herself into a lilac shrub to disguise herself. To Pan's surprise, he couldn't find her, but he did find the shrub. Because it was a lilac shrub and it consists of hollow reeds, he cut the reeds and created the first pan pipe. The scientific name for lilac is Syringa vulgaris, derived from the Greek word syrinx, which means pipe. Ah. Now, the lilac, throughout the ages, has had a fascinating history. Celtics regarded it as magical because it has an intoxicating fragrance, Mm -hmm. which I feel like holds up for Scottish people. We're just like, oh, that smells good. Yeah. (laughs) During the Victorian age, the giving of a lilac was meant to be a reminder of an old love, so widows were often seen wearing them. Ah, oh, I see. And in Russia, apparently, holding a sprig of lilac over the newborn is said to bring wisdom. Oh. And another interesting fact about them, because I got right down a rabbit hole, <laughs> is that in a poetic sense, I was wondering like why, so for all those explanations, it still didn't really make sense why it would be so prevalent in Sabrina's poetry, mm-hmm. other than there's just a lot of lilacs in her life. Yeah. But lilacs have a very short bloom time. They only bloom once a year at the very beginning of spring for about three weeks. Mm-hmm. So I reckon if something happens when lilacs are blooming, it probably has a very deep olfactory memory. Yeah, yeah, because you're only getting it in that Because you time. only get it yeah. in that wee window of time, and also I guess like they're they are meant to be kind of magical and spiritual and whatever, and then they go. Yeah. So they're probably quite poetic flowers. Oh, I'm going to keep that in mind for my novel where I need flowers. There you go. <laughs> so, yeah, I got. I love, like, flower Same, I love. stuff. I'm so excited to write that novel when I eventually get to write it properly because I get to be a little geek about it. Do you need to read Ophelia, girls? You really do. Yeah, I know. <laughs> anyway, Carol, <laughs> what is your insight? I have something a little different today. Ooh. So, the day I wrote this episode, it was World Poetry Day. Oh! And seeing as... I missed that. Not that I knew that you were going to talk about poetry, but seeing as I never talk about poetry, I thought I would read one of my favourite poems. Love it! It's not a particularly clever or funny or intricate poem, but I just always love the rhythm of it. It's very spooky as well. It's Annabelle Lee by Edgar Allan Poe. (laughs) I love it. Uh, I have I have the big boy book out. Yes. Why not? Yeah, gotta crack that bad boy open sometime. Yeah. There's a word in here I always pronounce wrong, even though I know I'm doing it. I'm gonna try my best to do it right. Okay, so this is Annabelle Lee. It was many and many a year ago in a kingdom by the sea that a maiden lived whom you may know by the name of Annabelle Lee. And this maiden she lived with no other thought than to love and be loved by me. I was a child, and she was a child, in this kingdom by the sea. But we loved with a love that was more than love, I and my Annabelle Lee. With a love that the winged seraphs of heaven coveted her and me. And this was the reason that, long ago, in this kingdom by the sea, a wind blew out of a cloud by night, chilling my Annabelle Lee. So that her high-born kingsman came and bore her away from me to shut her up in a sepulchre in this kingdom by the sea. The angels not half so happy in heaven went envying her and me. Yes, that was the reason, as all men know, in this kingdom by the sea, that the wind came out of the cloud, chilling and killing my Annabelle Lee. But our love, it was stronger by far than the love of those who were older than we. 
of many far wiser than we, and neither the angels in heaven above nor the demons down under the sea can ever dissever my soul from the soul of the beautiful Annabel Lee. For the moon never beams without bringing me dreams of the beautiful Annabel Lee, and the stars never rise but I see the bright eyes of the beautiful Annabel Lee. And so all the night tide I lie down by the side of my darling, my darling, my life and my bride, in her sepulchre there by the sea, in her tomb by the sounding sea. Oof. It's just so sad <laughs> and it's very spooky. It is very spooky. It's just chilling in the graveyard. Yeah. I just love for the moon never beams without bringing me dreams. That's mm-hmm. my favourite line. I know. And yeah, this poem also inspired Cassie Clare's Dark Artifices series, which is why I love that series so much. They basically make Annabelle a very vengeful character. Ooh. Um, and like, the insinuation is that this actually happened, and then Edgar Allan Poe heard about it and wrote the poem about Ooh. that person. That's cool. It is cool. <laughs> so yeah, there you go. That's my favourite poem. I enjoyed that a lot. <laughs> nice one. So that is us this week. If you have any comments or questions, then our email is infatuatedpodcast at outlook.com. We also have social media, which is linked in the show notes, along with everything we've talked about today, including the Infatuated Mix, which has all the music we mention. And please rate and review us on your podcast apps, because that helps get the podcast out there. Yay! See you later. (laughs) Bye. Bye. Bye.